This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host, Sam Chandon. Welcome to the Real Estate Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon. The Real Estate Hour airs at noon Eastern every Friday. Immediately after our show at 1 p.m. Eastern, stay tuned to Business Radio for Behind the Markets, hosted by Professor Jeremy Siegel and Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Schwartz. I am delighted to be joined by one of the most influential economists in our industry. With me to offer his assessment to the housing market, Dr. Doug Duncan is chief economist of Fannie Mae and a returning guest to the program. Doug, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. Doug, big picture to kick us off. Where do you see us in the housing market halfway through 2018? The uh, activity has been a little less than uh, what we had initially forecast, maybe a, uh, down a point and a half in terms of the number of home sales. That's largely a function of the, the faster growth on the demand side of the equation than growth on the supply side of the equation. Builders are still building, but the progress in rebuilding the supply function has been gradual. And the millennials, as they've said, even since the, uh, the recession, the, when they get a job, they get an income, they get married, maybe they're going to buy a house. Right. Well, you know, they've been rampant demand curve. Yeah. You, you mentioned sort of that supply curve has been moving out slowly. Uh, many of our guests on the program have commented on supply constraints in the single family market, you know, a variety of factors related to labor, land, uh, local zoning that are constraining uh, single family development activity. I'm looking at a chart of building permits, and it looks like those numbers are increasing steadily. And in more, your most recent report, um, you mentioned that existing home inventory posted its first increase in three years. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on right. uh, where you see us with uh, the supply side of the market? Well, the the existing homes uh, have reflected the fact that the boomers have said for some time they intend to age in place and remodel the house because they want the, the kids to come home and bring the grandkids. And they've been doing that. It's actually one of the labor issues related to the builders of new single-family homes is the least productive use of skilled labor is in remodeling. Uh, most productive is multifamily. Second is new build existing home or new build uh, single family homes, and they're modeling the third. So the, the boomers are actually draining off some of that labor, skill, higher skilled labor supply, remodeling their houses. So they've the, the share of existing homes listed relative to our households today is at 30 year lows, but it did bump up the last couple of months, which is a, a good sign. Part of it might be uh, just the the segment of the market that um, that that impacts. Yeah, one of the things I'm curious about, uh, coming from Canada, I'm keenly aware that. Uh, disputes with the United States as relate to uh, softwood lumber have been uh, a, an issue for as long as I can remember. Uh, and it looks like it's back on the table. Uh, given the importance of uh, softwood lumber as an input to construction, d- does that uh, p- present any potential threats to the single-family building outlook? Well, if you, you can actually see uh, the jump in some of their input costs. If you look at the PPI numbers, uh, you'll see a rise in the construction space in the cost of lumber. Part of it is the tariffs, no question. 
A part of it is some shipping conflicts with uh, oil, for example, being able to uh, get rail service. Uh, and there are there has, of course, some of the fires that we've seen out on the West Coast have had at least some residual impact on that. So the, it's a real issue for them in terms of cost. And when you're thinking about building entry-level homes in particular, all those elements of cost work against the increase in supply. Yeah. Um, w- without uh, wading too deeply into the politics of it, uh, when we look at uh, the way in which um, the environment for uh, immigration uh, is changing, uh, d- does that have a potential impact on the informal segment of the construction labor force that could also be relevant here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know Pew did uh, Pew Foundation did some research on uh, where which sectors of the economy would be most impacted in that way, and construction was uh, was the largest. Their assessment, I think, was that about 15 percent of the labor force was uh, informal. So, uh, as you as you noted, one of the things that the builders um, say is a hurdle is access to labor. So that, that would be a factor. Yeah. I mean, when we look at the kinds of homes that are being built, m- my sense is that we haven't actually been building a lot of what we would think of as starter homes or, f- you know, homes that are, you know, targeting the, the first time home buyer. I- I- is that accurate or, uh, you know, have we started to see a bit of a move? It is accurate. You can actually uh, see in the publicly uh, gathered data the square footage of homes being built, and only in the last few months has the square footage trended down toward what you would think of as an entry-level house. Uh, we think of that as maybe 2,000 square feet. So the average home being built is still significantly larger than that, but uh, it is trending down. The, there is a question, regulatory response to the crisis raised the entry-level cost or, or profitability uh, of the relative to the size of the home that will let builders build what we traditionally thought of as an entry-level home or whether the, the change in the cost structure means that that entry-level house profitably built will be larger and more expensive than in the past. So the, if that's the case, we would have to wait for some income adjustment uh, at the household level to get back to a sort of a normal balance in supply and demand at the end level. Yeah. And to break it down a little bit, you and I are both based out of very, very high-cost markets. I spent some time in San Francisco, uh, not unlike New York and D.C., an extraordinarily high-cost uh, part of the country. Are we seeing any significant differences in trends, um, you know, the, the coasts versus the interior of the country? Um, any slowdown uh, in the, you know, the housing price momentum in a market like San Francisco or San Jose? We are. Uh, we're seeing at the high end, the highest end of the market, we're seeing some extension of the number of days on the market. That is the listed days for properties. That's been extending significantly. Part of that, there's probably at least three factors at work there. Uh, one is the uh, the that there is probably some residual impact from the tariff discussions about source of foreign cash flowing into those markets. A second one is in those states with significant state and local taxes, the truncation of the tax benefit relative to uh, what is called the SALT component uh, suggests there is some slowing of, uh, of activity in the upper end of the market. And also, I think, 
that those households tend to be perhaps more of a portfolio manager and maybe in anticipation of the rise in rates, they preposition themselves more so than other income groups. And now that rates have risen some, the level of activity is slowing in that, in that category. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit more about the SALT deduction. So for you know, our listeners, state and local taxes, uh, there's a cap on how, uh, you know, just how much of that you can deduct uh, when you're filing your taxes each year. Uh, and for those of us in a you know, high-cost state like New York, I think we're acutely aware of uh, you know, what this uh, might mean. Um, if you own a you know, small one-bedroom, a two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, uh, it's very likely that uh, you've already blown through uh, the cap on uh, your SALT deduction. Uh, it, it stands to reason it would seem intuitive that that would have you know some exert some kind of drag on um, you know housing investment uh, you know by homeowners you know in these markets. Doug, are, are we actually seeing that? Well, it's it's early. We think we are seeing it, but I'm I'm not ready to make a a claim that that's the specific causal effect. No, unquestionably, in multiple of those uh, high cost markets, you are seeing the top end of that market slow down and supplies rising uh, relative to the to the pace of sales. Uh, as I said, whether it's specifically that or that's one of, we tend to think that's one of several uh, components. We're actually watching uh, at the upper end of the loans which qualify for uh, GSE uh, guarantees. We've seen a little flow down there. Again, waiting to see if we can statistically attribute it to that factor. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Channel 132, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sam Chandon, your host, and my guest is Doug Duncan, Chief Economist at Fannie Mae. You know, Doug, when we're thinking about the outlook for this year, uh, you had mentioned that you know, you're seeing properties uh, on market, you know, even just a few days longer, or a little bit longer than you know, perhaps a year ago. You know, for me, that's a leading indicator of you know, some softening uh, of activity. I, I see in your most recent report, which for listeners is available on the, the, the Fannie Mae website, uh, you're projecting that home sales will decline this year. Um, so can you give us a little bit of additional color uh, as to what's behind your projection? Yes, the the existing home sales have actually dropped slightly uh, on a year-over-year basis, I think, for the last five months. So the actual uh, flow of sales has been uh, just slightly under our forecast. So for existing sales, I think at the start of the year, we thought they might go up about 1.5%, and now it looks like they'll be down something a little less than 1%, depending on how the rest of the year goes. New home sales still up from last year, but not as far up uh, as we thought, and they're a much smaller share of the total market. So, on the, for the full market, a slight decline. We so what are the factors behind that? One is, of course, lack of supply. More the, as people have moved down in the lower price categories, the supply is most tight in the lower price categories. So. If there's even if you would like to buy, if there's no properties available, that's obviously going to impact the number of sales that that occur. One of the things that we noticed in our monthly survey on attitudes about buying homes, uh, called the Home Purchase Sentiment Index, was this month for the first time in citing reasons that it's a good time to buy or a good time to sell. Price was listed as the top item. Then. On the question of is it a bad time to buy, price was also listed as the number one thing. So what we concluded from that is that for people who currently own a home, they recognize if they sold, they could take out more equity than they might have expected. 
But then if they have to buy another house, they'd be giving that equity right back to the, to the seller of the house that they purchased. That, to us, is part of what's driving the growth in remodel or stay in place and add another floor, which is something that's going on in the existing home market. And part of the reason why existing homes available for sale are at roughly 30-year lows. Yeah, I can definitely uh, sympathize with uh, the, the sentiment index. I, I'm astonished what uh, I'd be able to get if I were to sell my condo here in New York City. But it does present the challenge for me of, well, gosh, where do I go next? And where am I going to find something that feels like anywhere near a good deal? So it, it sounds like you know that uh, you know, personal experience that I've had is something that is uh, you know, showing up fairly broadly in, in, your, uh, in your measure of sentiment in the market. Yeah, that's right. And we, what we said in the headline of the release was it, it looks to us like the market has plateaued at this point until there are some supply adjustments. That's not really inconsistent with a slight decline in sales this year. We actually think there will be some recovery on the supply side if incomes continue to grow and the economy continues to grow. And so our forecast for next year is that we would probably recapture that downturn across the two years of 2018 and 19, sort of flat uh, in, in total market activity. But when we are on the subject of sort of what happens with wages uh, and in the labor market over the next couple of years, I know the market listens very closely uh, to your uh, monthly updates on uh, where we are with the economy, where uh, we might be, your projections on behalf of Fannie Mae. What do you see uh, for the next couple of years in that regard? Well, we're already in the third quarter of 18, and our thought for this year that it'll be just north of 3% growth for the year. So that's pretty good. It's above what most economists think our long-term stable growth rate uh, would be, somewhere around two and a quarter to two and a half percent. So that's a good number. Uh, we think next year uh, somewhere around two and a half percent growth. We do think there'll be some slowing. Part of the reason for that is that the the stimulus portion of the tax bill will be in place for years so that will be, uh, households and the business community will adjust to that. The spending uh, that was uh, part of the spending bill early this year, the impulse of that will probably pass mid-year next year. So the amount of stimulus pushing things forward in the second half of next year will start to, uh, to slow down. And we actually see some slowing in the next year out in 2020 beyond that. And some of the risks rising uh, in that this is a, a quite a long expansion. This time next year, it'll be the longest expansion we've ever had. Just because they're, it gets old doesn't mean it will end. But the fact is they've all ended at some point. And the Fed, we expect to raise rates two more times this year and once next year before taking a pause. That's going to require some adjustment uh, in the overall economy and in housing given the very long uh, period of very low interest rates, that was really a significant policy push being reversed. Yeah. Well, it, on the labor market side of this, given how you know, tight the labor market is today, um, you know, there are, uh, I, I gather, you know, fewer uh, than uh, one person available for you know, every job uh, that is open out there. Um, you know, what's the prognosis for uh, you know, wage growth uh, and the impact that that might have on inflation over the course of the next year? That is an interesting discussion that's uh, taking place among economists and other people who uh, feast on data. The, there was the expectation that we couldn't continue to add 
the number of workers that we have have been because they simply weren't available. But that's actually one of the bets that was in the tax bill. The bet was that there actually were people sitting on the sideline not having been boomers retired, that with uh, an increase in after-tax wages would enter the workforce. And that appears to have been true and to continue to be true. Uh, our thought is in order to maintain the unemployment rate at, at a constant level, you only need to add about 100, 100 to 120,000 workers per month. We've been adding in the first quarter of this year something around 240,000. Now, the, one of the questions on wage rates, and people look at average hourly earnings, and they've been pretty steady, not much increase in that space. The Atlanta Fed uh, looked at that taking uh, – uh, taking, asking the question, are we thinking about it properly? Because you've got boomers retiring at something like 10000 a day toward the peak of their lifetime earnings, and they're being replaced by entry-level people. So is there an averaging effect that's holding that wage gain, looking as if there are no gains? So they've broken out on a weighted basis what they call their wage tracker, and if that's an accurate analyst, it's showing significantly stronger wage gains for entry-level people than is reflected in the overall market uh, uh, average. That would align with the demand growth that we've seen on the demand side of the housing market. That would, that would align with that uh, quite nicely, showing why the, the, the price appreciation has been so strong with slow growth of supply and strong growth on the demand side. What are your expectations then for inflation over the next year or so? Uh, we think it's, uh, I think the core PCE is up around 2.2%. We think that will uh, stay there. We think that it's within the Fed's range. They're, we think that they're going to be tolerant uh, of that. The pace of tightening, if they were to accelerate the pace of tightening, I think they might think that raised some risks. Uh, to growth. Uh, I think they're going to continue the pace that they're on to let the economy adjust over time. There's a debate about what they will do in 2019. We have a little more conservative view. We, uh, in our forecast, have only one rate increase next year. We think they'll take a little pause unless there's some sign of breakout in inflation. We don't really think there will be that breakout in inflation. We think that uh, multiple sectors of the economy are are adjusting, and we're not seeing. Uh, we may see some growth in wages, but one of the things the Fed uh, will do to determine whether they see that as inflationary or not is see is there a pickup in productivity. That's the one piece of the bet that was in the tax plan that's yet to bear fruit. If productivity gains start showing up because of the increase in business investment then the increase in wages will be a function of real income growth, uh, and the Fed will not view that uh, as threatening uh, on the inflation front uh, as they would if there are no real gains in productivity. We did have, in the most recent lease, a kind of an inkling that it, uh, productivity may be picking up. It remains to be seen whether that will be sustained. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Channel 132 on Sirius XM, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Doug Duncan, Chief Economist of Fannie Mae. We're talking about the economy, interest rates, and housing. Uh, looking at the longer end of the yield curve, Doug, uh, when we were chatting about a year ago, 
Mortgage rates were 75 basis points lower than where they are today. When we were chatting about two years ago, they were 100 basis points lower. Uh, are you seeing any, and of course, by historic norms, you know, rates are still extraordinarily low. Are you seeing any impact from rising rates? Uh, have any expectations for where those might go over the next year? Yeah, we we talked about supply being one of the reasons why sales this year may be a little lower. I think there's the second factor is, in fact, uh, interest rates. Traditionally, the what the housing market does not like is significant increases in rates in a short time period because household incomes don't adjust that fast. And uh, it's not that you see house prices fall, but you see the number of sales fall. So I, I think that the rise in rates, which we have seen, while it's not been historically significant in the time period that it's occurred, is enough that after a long period of very low rates, there are some adjustments that are taking place at the household level, and that is holding back sales to some degree. If part of the reason our next year's forecast suggests we will recapture the, the decline is that we don't actually see rates going very far from where they are. Part of that is a function of looking out on the longer part of the, of the yield curve and observing that U.S. 10-year rates, which is really where the mortgage rates are based off of, are best in the world. And, and so if you're thinking about where capital flows are going to be headed, uh, I think you're going to see capital flows into the U.S. Uh, Treasury market, which will hold those longer rates down uh, uh, through, the, through the next year. Barring any breakout in inflation, which would have the Fed uh, respond to a rise in nominal rates, we actually don't see rates going mortgage rates going very far from where they are throughout next year. And then if things slow later in the year, you may see that even continue a little further out. Yeah, well, that's a fairly you know, good story for the prospective homeowner out there. You know, Doug, for most of the cycle, you know, a big part of the narrative in the multifamily market where I spend most of my time uh, has been you know, millennials uh, really as long-term renters. Uh, your report shows what looks like a turnaround in home ownership rates over the last couple of quarters, and it looks uh, even stronger for under 35s than it does for the population as a whole. Uh, do you see some uh, improvement in the home ownership outlook over the next couple of years? Obviously, there was a lot of pessimism around this uh, in the early days of the housing crisis. Yeah, our our thought was that the pessimism was unwarranted because we, we started surveying monthly in June of 2010. And from the very first month survey all the way out to today, as you track that age group, over 90% have said, we eventually want to own a home. But we have to get our credit in shape. We have to be fully employed. We have to have a growing income. We're going to get married. They delayed marriage by two years, more than the same age cohort a decade earlier, uh, and have a baby. And then we're going to buy a house if there's one available. where the jobs grew initially in this expansion were not the places where you could build a single-family starter home. So the story about millennials wanting to rent a 300-square-foot apartment with amenities, if you're in San Jose, that's the only thing available. And so it wasn't necessarily that you wanted that, but you wanted the job. And to live somewhere in proximity to the job, that's what you were faced with. About three years ago, we saw the first change in behavior, but the, the, fir- the share of new millennial households formed, which went into owned, increased, and the share that went into rented decreased. That trend line has continued for the succeeding three years and strengthened. 
So the, the, if you actually track the individuals as they age, you'll see that's a sustained trend, and we expect it to continue. They said they wanted to own a home. Now that they have a job, they have a family, they're doing that and moving into the, into the own space. Yeah. One of the most fascinating charts uh, for, for me in your August report describes you know, the surge in household formation being driven entirely by homeowner households. So it is what I'm seeing in this chart uh, and that home ownership drive uh, it really part of what you're describing? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, but that's when we feel really good about the survey that we've done. It's been a very housing-centric survey. That's why I made this statement about our most recent release seeing this plateauing in household. We're just kind of warning people, don't expect the continued strengthening of growth over the next couple of years, much more of a flat market. That's not a bad thing. Uh, it's just as you're planning, you need to kind of have that in mind. The survey has been very useful uh, in uh, pointing to where people intend to go and then where they actually go. Yeah. One more question I want to ask you before your break, and I really appreciate the time you've taken with us today. Um, you know, when we look at, across the range of options that are available to people in, in the institutional market, there's uh, been some more focus uh, during this cycle on single-family home rentals, um, it, it, and it's getting a lot of attention. Is it the case that we're seeing larger number of, of households in single-family home rentals, uh, or is it that this market is becoming more institutional and more visible? Um, the, the, there's. Yeah, some confusion about that. There's actually something on the order of 16 million single-family rental homes out there, most of them owned by moms and pops. Somebody bought a starter home. They had some kids that needed a bigger house. They kept the first one as a rental and bought another house. Very typical, the local doctor or lawyer who has some additional funds wants to diversify their portfolio buys a couple of rentals in the market that they know. What was different this time was the institutional investor who got in and really served to perform an arbitrage where in, in the peak of the, the uh, boom, there was actually an oversupply of properties, and that led to a dramatic price decline. They entered the market and, and served uh, as a market-clearing mechanism to perform an arbitrage. Interestingly, the technology has enabled that as a business model now, uh, and you're, while I don't, I think we're back to relatively normal proportions of single-family rental versus multifamily rentals, I do think you'll see some institutional investment in that space going forward. I was talking to uh, some builders who actually now when they're building tracts, they have an arrangement in the, the tract community where they build a certain percentage were intended, which are intended for sale to investors who will then maintain them as a rental. It gives access to some preferred school districts in some cases for renters, which has been a, a complaint of, uh, among the rental community for people that really don't want to own but would like to be able to rent somewhere in proximity to the school districts that, are, that benefit uh, homeowners. So it's an interesting structural change. It's not huge but it's significant and useful. Right. And, and I do wonder about that. I know that 
you know, there's uh, part of the discussion in the multifamily market is around to what extent do uh, does the millennial population, even as it ages, want to maintain that flexibility around renting uh, uh, as opposed to owning. But but at the same time, you know, as the household grows, you know, it, there's clearly a drive. Your your preferences, you know, begin to change. The, the the amenities that you value begin to change, and all of a sudden, that good quality public school begins to to matter a lot. Uh, should we reasonably expect then um, that uh, you know, that segment of the market, the ability to live in a home, to be in a good school district, uh, but to be able to remain a renter um, is, is a part of the market that uh, will remain important? I think it will remain in the market. Uh, uh, and it will be important, though not huge. But it is, we sort of have a bias toward home ownership, but there are people who simply like the flexibility of renting, and a, a share of them will be raising families in the process, even though they could economically afford to buy a home. I don't think it'll be huge, but I think it will be resilient. Well, Doug, thank you so much for joining me again on the program. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 